So uh, since chapter 3 of this book that we're looking at is really a letter uh, that Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, uh, and that church was full of, of Jewish uh, Christians, people who were Jews and had been converted and became Christians. Uh, it was full of kind of pagan Christians, those who, didn't, who weren't Jewish or didn't have kind of an Old Testament background, and they became Christians, followers of Jesus. And so Paul is writing to this very church um, about lots of different things. For the first few chapters, he was trying to kind of build the case for uh, what sin is and how our rebellion against God and our desire to live for ourselves and just kind of a thoroughgoing, self-centered existence, he says that that's sin and that sort of rebellion deserves God's wrath, his anger, because we have rebelled against him. And then he spent the last few chapters, the end of 3 and 4 and 5, unfolding the gospel of grace. And he said, look, sin is so bad that it's just devastated your ability to come to God on your own. But God didn't just leave us there. He came for us. And he pursued us, and and he offered us righteousness, a right standing with him through what Jesus has done. You can't earn that. You don't deserve it. You receive it. And that's that's called grace. And Paul actually, at this point, he's kind of built this, this mountain for how amazing grace is. And he starts to anticipate this question, because in chapter 5 last week, he introduced this idea. He kind of said, so, like, where sin increased or where sin abounded... Grace increased even more. And he said, he makes up a word actually in Greek. He actually made up a word. He said, where, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And so, in Paul's mind, as he's kind of logically unfolding what the gospel means, he asks this question, which you see right there in verse 1. He says, So, let me get this straight. If, if sin abounds, if sin makes grace to be even better than it is, should we continue sinning so that grace can continue superabounding? Like, should I just keep giving into my sin and being awful so that God's grace can be shown to be way better than that? And he'll go on to say, by no means. By no means. But let me just make sure we understand what grace is before we do this, because you have to get this before we move on. Think of it like this. Uh, imagine that you have gone uh, to a bank and you've taken out a credit card from that bank and you have gone out, and some of y'all have heard this before because it's amazing. Um, just kidding. Uh, but you've taken out a credit card and you went and you charged $100 of that credit card. But the reality is, is that you're a student and you don't have a job and you can't pay that back. Okay? And so uh, you're getting the bill and you start getting the angry bills and you get the collectors showing up at your door. And so you walk into the bank and you go right for the president of the bank. And you say, look, here's the deal. I go to the University of Tulsa. I'm paying everything I own and everything my parents own to go to school there. Um, I can't pay this bill. And the president looks down at it and looks at you and your pity face and says, okay, I'll forgive your debt. You're like, wow, awesome. Man, 100 bucks, great. Now, the reality is, is that that's not grace. That's nice. That's a kind thing he did. And it may, you may be happy for like a week or maybe a month. But in probably a year or more, you're, that's not going like to be life-changing for you. But imagine that you take out that same credit card and you, and you spend $100,000. Okay? You walk into that same bank office, uh, the president's office, and she looks at you this time. It's a woman. Equal, equal opportunity here. And, uh, and she says, uh, well, what's the deal? You say, well, 
kind of got crazy, took a few friends to New York one weekend, ate all the restaurants. We ate them in our mouth. Um, and I'm not going to be able to pay this back. And the president looks at you and your crying face at this point and says, I forgive your debt. Man, you're going to be ecstatic. But the reality is that that's not a life-changing moment because you can imagine that over the course of your life, you could have probably paid that back. You wouldn't have wanted to, but you probably could have done that. Here's the reality. That sin is like we have a credit card and we go max it out to millions of dollars. They would never give you a million-dollar credit limit, but imagine. And then you go to the stock market. That bank has an investment arm. And you go double down. You short the market. And the market takes off, which means you lose everything. Like, it, you lose your, your house. You lose your shirt. Like, you owe the bank billions and billions and billions of dollars. You can't pay it back. You go to that bank president... <laughs> Naked because you've lost everything. Um, And you're like, look, what can we do? And the bank president says, I forgive your debt. That is not grace. That's mercy. You got something you didn't deserve. And that's great. God is merciful. But grace is that that president looks at you and says, I'm putting your name on my account. And I'm giving you my credit card. And you have unlimited access to all the wealth that I stand for in this bank. You're brought into the family. You get a new name. You're a new person. You get something you didn't deserve that day. That's grace. And that's what the Bible says is true in the gospel. That it's not just that our sins forgiven and we're brought back to zero. God gives us Christ's righteousness. We get this infinite amount of... of of right living credited to our account because of something we didn't do. And Paul thinks that's amazing. And so he starts to say, man, so can we just do whatever we want now? And he answers that for us tonight in this passage. So let's look at it. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. This is the word of the Lord.
tonight, I want us to explore this, this grace, this amazing grace that Paul says is on display in the gospel through this idea that he talks about here called union with Christ. Union with Christ. Some of you went on fall conference a few weeks back, and this is what Hunter talked about. Uh, so you may know it a little bit. But union with Christ is this massive and very important category for how uh, Christians relate to, to God. Okay? And so if you're not a Christian tonight, that, that's great. Uh, you're going to be looking in on this and saying, if this were true of me, this is what this would mean. If you are a Christian, you're saying, this is true of me. This is what should, this is what should be operative in my life. So three things that you have. You have a funeral to attend, a birth to celebrate, and a life to live. A funeral to attend, a birth to celebrate, and a life to live. Let's go right there, number one. As you notice in that passage, no doubt, when Paul starts talking about how someone who is united to Christ thinks about their life and how it is they should think about sin, Paul starts talking about death a lot. Right? Look at that passage. Look in verse 2. He says, How can we who died, st- uh, to, who died to sin still live in it? In verse 3 and 4, he's talking about being baptized into Jesus' death. In verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 7, the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, you might be tempted to think, man, Paul, ooh, it's kind of dark here. He's going, he's going to the dark spot with us. Why is he talking about death so much? I thought this was supposed to be good news. Well, I want us to zoom in on what he's saying by looking at verses 3 and 4, kind of as a controlling um, a couple verses for this passage. Look right there. He says that those who have been baptized with Christ have been baptized into his death. What in the world does that mean? What does that mean? I'm going to suggest in order for us to understand what it means to be baptized into Christ's death, we have to understand what baptism means. So let's talk about that for just a second. In the Christian faith, baptism is a sign of one's relationship to Christ. Baptism is a sign of one's relationship to Christ. To be baptized is to say, I'm with Jesus. I'm with him. Right? It's like you're sitting at the dinner table uh, out at a restaurant. The bill comes and you, everybody points at Dad like, I'm with him. <laughs> He's paying for this. So to be in Christ and to be baptized means I'm with Jesus. But let's think about the nature of a sign. Baptism is a sign. Signs point to a reality beyond themselves. Signs point to a reality beyond themselves. Very clearly illustrated, driving down the road on the BA or on any highway, uh, and you see a big sign. Let's say it's it's a sign about secondhand smoke. And it's got all these statistics about how secondhand smoke kills more lives than than firsthand smoke and all this stuff. And, And basically, it's this informational sign that points to a greater reality. What's the greater reality? That the smoke from cigarettes and cigars and everything, that it's harmful, extremely harmful, and it can kill people. Okay? It says something. It's a physical sign that you can touch, but it points to a reality beyond it. Or let's say that you're driving down the street and you see a blue square sign with an H on it and an arrow. You know that there's a hospital down that road because the sign is pointing to a reality. One more example, one that hopefully isn't too familiar to you. Uh, you get a test back and there's a D at the top of it, Right? Some of you. And um, you see that D, and it points to a greater reality, and it's that you didn't study. You stayed up flirting with that special little someone all night. 
Or more likely, it was just a ridiculously hard test. I'm not discounting your game. Maybe you've got game. Um, But it points to a reality beyond itself. Baptism points to the reality that what's true of Jesus is now true of me. And look, for reasons that I can't fully go into tonight, I actually think that baptism should be given to the children of believers also. So I'm going to open that can and set it over here on the stage. Talk to me later if you want to talk about that. Um, Can't go into it. But baptism says that what's true of Jesus is true of me. So what is true of Jesus? Paul says in this passage that Jesus died. He died. He literally died on a cross through a Roman execution. He died through asphyxiation. He, he sat up there and choked as, the, as the, the muscle in his leg gave out and he suffered under the weight of his body. He died. Historically verifiable truth. So why did Jesus die? He died because along with the Father and the, and the Spirit, before the foundation of the world, they decided that they were going to create a world, and they knew that that world was going to rebel against them. And so together, as a trinity, they decided that they would go ahead and create the world, but that one day they would have to come and redeem the world. And the means by which a fallen humanity can be redeemed is if one comes to begin a new humanity. So Jesus comes to redeem the world, to take on sin. He came to die for the sin of God's people. So Jesus came to die. And Paul is saying that what, what's true of Jesus, if you are in Christ, if you are trusting Him, what's true of Him becomes true of you. So that means that if He died and you're in Him, then you died. Let me say that again because that's weird. If Jesus died, which he literally did 2,000 plus years ago at the cross, or 2,000 less years ago at the cross, you died. How do we make sense of that? That's a bizarre statement. At the cross of Christ, we could say, there lies the old Brent. There lies the old you, if you're in Christ. And there's a funeral to have. Because what the Bible is saying, what Paul's trying to get across, is that in a very real sense, if you're in Christ, the old you died. What's the old you? It's the you that was controlled through slavery to sin. It's the you that was in Adam, as Paul talked about in Romans 5. That you has died. You are a new person. Think about the last time, um, this is kind of hard, let me try to illustrate this way. Think about the last time you saw uh, a really great performance. An actor or an actress who really uh, took the role and got into it and just nailed it. I mean, killed it. Um, the last time I, I can remember being really moved, I'm not much of a cinema guy, but the last time I can really be, remember being moved by a movie was uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in the movie, um, in the show Capote. Right, and, and he embodies this character perfectly, Truman Capote in his life. Um, it was amazing. Maybe for you, um, maybe it's Michael Scott in The Office. It's ridiculous, but he's amazing. 
Like, he plays that part. In fact, he played it so well that he's kind of screwed for the rest of his life. Like, everybody sees him as Michael, as Michael Scott or Steve Carell. But, uh, everybody sees him in that role. Or maybe Amy Poehler in Parks and Rec. You see the kind of TV that I watch. Um, maybe it's uh, Winona Ryder in Stranger Things. She's killing it. She's great. I watched three of those episodes when I was sick a few weeks ago. No more. Too scary. <laughs> but she's great. Just like an actor that buys into a narrative in order to play the part and to do it well, uh, the reality is that what we, to, what we believe to be true about ourselves, the narrative that we tell ourselves is true about us, we buy into that. We play that part, as it were. And that looks this way. If you believe that the, the fundamentally the most true thing about you is that you're a screw-up and you'll never change, if that is kind of your life narrative, it will play out in your life in a thousand different ways. If you believe that you are an amazing person who never messes up and is just kind of awesome and killing it at life, that will play itself out because you won't have any friends. Uh, but that becomes the thing that you buy into and, and you realize that people don't like that. But that's kind of what you've bought into. That's who you think you are. Think about, um, this is the idea that, that, kind of that thought that I'll always be this way. I can never change. I'm, I'm enslaved to my Myers-Briggs personality profile. I'll always just be an INTJ or an ESFJ. It ain't all good, y'all. Um, here's why this matters in real-life implications. There's a lot of you that have these thoughts through the day of saying, I'll always be a perfectionist. I'm so tired of it. It drives me crazy. I wish I could just let that thing go. I wish I could not have to need to get an A on everything or not have to look perfect when I step out the door. But that's just the way I am. And that's the narrative that's playing in your mind. Some of you, it's that uh, you can't stop and you imagine that you'll never stop living in this fantasy world. Whether that's um, you, you're imagining somebody that you're not and you're kind of living that out, or whether it's kind of this twisted and maybe pornographic fantasy that you kind of live in. You think, I can never change. I've been in it so long, I can't imagine being different. Maybe for you it's that I'm just always going to be a cynic. That's just who I am. I'm just always going to kind of see through everything. I can never take someone's word at face value because I know that everybody's kind of lying or trying to use their influence for manipulation or whatever. Maybe it's that you're saying, um, I can't stop obsessing about what others think about me, and I guess I never will. I'm just functionally enslaved to the opinion of others. I've been that way so long, I can't imagine being different. What's the narrative that you're buying into? Because whatever you think is true of you, you will live out of that place. And what Paul is saying is that if you are in Christ, that old you has died. That old you who is defined by something that you've done, whether good or awful. And both people... Whether you are someone whose life looks good or whether you are someone whose life functionally looks quite terrible on the inside or outside, you both are being enslaved by that narrative. And Paul's giving you a way out. and He's saying you can be united to Jesus in his death. The old you can die. 
and there's a funeral for you to attend. And maybe that means that you walk out of here tonight and you need to go back to your room and like have a funeral service with God and say, God, I'm not believing that. Maybe you can do it on the way home. Maybe you need to talk to a friend about it. Maybe you need to talk to me about it. There's a funeral to attend because the old you is dead in Christ. But there's also a birth to celebrate. Because notice how Paul is, he's talking about all of this dying and the death to sin and the death to us and Christ's baptism and all this stuff. He's not just saying that as an end in itself. He's saying that to set up what he goes on to say. He's saying that you have now, if, you are, if you're united to Christ in his death, you are united to Christ in his resurrection. That you have a new life. You have a new life. And that's the second thing tonight. There's a birth to celebrate. Notice, look at verses 4 and 5. He said that we were buried, therefore, with him by, uh, by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then down in verses 7 and 8. Uh, He says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Do you hear what he's saying? If Christ has died and you're in Christ, then you have died. Christ died and Christ was raised. So if you're in Christ, you have a new life. You are literally a new person from God's vantage point. And it should be so from our vantage point. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He's talking about this same stuff. And, and he says it just kind of very, in, in a wooden, straight translation from the Greek. He says, therefore, if in Christ new, the old gone, new is here. I mean, it's, it's stilted. It's an awkward translation, but you get the point. If you are in Christ Old is gone. The old you doesn't exist in a very real and mysterious way. And a new you is living in an equally real and mysterious way. You are a new creation in Christ. Let me try to illustrate this a few different ways. Uh, Learning to live in light of our new birth, our new life, is like dropping a a tablet of alcohol. That's a big alcohol an Alka-Seltzer tablet into a cup, right? You drop it in there and it fizzes up and it's kind of weird because it's supposed to be medicine, but it's fizzing. And, um, but after a while, it just dissolves into the water. Now, the reason it does that is that the Alka-Seltzer is it's becoming something that it wasn't before. Sorry, the water is becoming something it wasn't before through this Alka-Seltzer. When you're united to Jesus in his resurrection life, it's like Alka-Seltzer's dropped into you. It, it feels funny for a little while. It's going to be weird to think about. But the purpose of it is that it's transforming you into something different. You are becoming a new person. The gospel is like medicine that begins to work inside of you, and you become something that you weren't before. Alternatively, I have some friends, um, or additionally, I have some friends who several years ago decided that uh, they were going to adopt a little girl from Ethiopia. And so if you know anything about adoption, especially foreign adoption, it's a long process, okay, and it's very expensive and all of that. But they had been through all the the hoops and paid the money, and it was time to get their daughter, right? So the date had been set, uh, the, the plane tickets had been bought, and Reed and Leanne, they did a very interesting thing. 
they took a stuffed animal from one of their other kids' bed and they sent it to Africa to their new little girl. Now, why did they do that? The way the read tells it, he says, we wanted our new child to know our smell. We wanted her to know the scent of our family so she could get used to it. Look, if you're in Christ, you've been united to him in his resurrected life. And it's as if he sent us a piece of him. He has. It's his Holy Spirit. And he's saying, I'm going to put that inside of you to start warming you up to what it's going to be like to be with me fully and finally one day. The Holy Spirit is like a deposit on our one day resurrected life when we'll be with Jesus forever. And so he warms us up to him and transforms us in the process. Lastly, two years ago on Thanksgiving, uh, some very, very generous people in our lives. Some of you all know this story. Um, they presented my family with a, with a brand new, very beautiful $60,000 Volvo SUV with a big family-sized travel box thing on top that's amazing and makes you feel outdoorsy. Um, it was everything I've ever wanted in a car, honestly. Um, and we couldn't have bought that, ever. And we had to receive that by grace. But the reality is that there's this beautiful car that sits in our driveway. And also the reality is that the fall is a busy season for the Corbins. There's a lot going on with RUF. Our kids are ramping back up at school. There's pumpkin patches. There's all kinds of things we're doing with them. And so that car has not been washed in, mm, it's been a long time. (laughs) And so if you were to drive by our house and see that really amazing, still pretty brand new car in our driveway, uh, you're going to be tempted to think it's not that nice. Or that maybe it's older than it is, and it's just it's not maybe that, that much to look at. But the reality is, is that there is a really, really, really nice, still kind of brand new car under all the grit and grime. Paul is trying to get us to see that when we're united to Jesus, we are a new person. And now the reality is that you may see me or I may see you during a period of life, maybe just one event or over a period of time, and what you see is a lot of grit and grime. And it may not be all that attractive or all that uh, pretty or smells good or whatever. It may, you may be tempted to look at me or I may look at you and think, man, I thought they were a Christian. I thought he was a Christian. I thought he was a pastor. But look. The Volvo is still the Volvo. It's still this very nice car. We take it to the, to the car wash. I spend an hour with it, and you will be coveting my car because it's amazing. If you're in Christ, you're a new person. The grit and grime is not who you are. That's the old you that's trying to come back in and take over your narrative, but that is not who you are. Union with Christ in His resurrection means that you are definitively a new person. But it doesn't mean you will never sin again. It means that you are definitively a new person. But it doesn't mean you will never sin again. The Christian life, from the point you become a Christian all the way until the end, is going to be a process of you becoming, you being what you've already become. You are leaning into and striving after this thing that God has already said you are. And so the old you is going to be trying to take over your narrative, and the new you has to continue to believe the gospel. If that's not who I am, stop. I've got to put that thing to death so I can live this new life. What does that life to live look like? A few things. 
Um, I'm going to try to be short with this. Good luck. Um, Verse 10 through 13. Let me just read that for us. He says this, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, this is talking about Jesus, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Look, y'all, Jesus died for sin once and for all at the cross so that you can die to sin every single day. Jesus died for your sins so that you can die to your sin through living a life um, that is pleasing to him, which ultimately will be for the love of neighbor and the good of the world. And this is so important. This is so important. If you've gone to sleep on me, come back in for these last couple minutes. This matters so much because we might be tempted... We might be tempted to think that if there's this future version of me one day, someday, that's going to be fully alive and fully pure, then the task of my life is just to become like this this sin bounty hunter and to, to kind of keep aware and just be hunting it out in every specific way and everywhere it shows up. And now you may have thought that's what the Christian life is, that I've got to be just striving to be totally free from sin. That will produce in you this inward-focused, navel-gazing life that sounds like this. Woe is me. I'm all sin. That's all I am. Look how terrible I am. I can't get over how awful things are. It's like um, Phyllis on uh, Inside Out and Phyllis on The Office and everywhere Phyllis is. Um, This is like this grumpy, frumpy voice thing. And Jesus is trying to get us to see, like, that's who you were. In Christ, you are a new creation and you have a life to live. That is not what is most true of you. So this means this, very practically. You want to go be a doctor? Go be a doctor to the glory of God. And that means that when you get tempted slash when you get puffed up by being prideful and thinking that you're the most amazing person ever because you're doing all these amazing things, which you are, you have to go to the car wash and repent of that because that's sin. And then you get up the next day and you go back to work, trying to be a doctor that glorifies God. This means if you want to be a mom, it means you go find an imperfect husband because that's the only kind there are. Uh, you go find an imperfect husband and you make a few babies and um, you take these children and you try to love them and you try to raise them and educate them and teach them about Jesus. And then when you idolize your children and make them your, your world, then you have to go to the car wash and repent of that. And believe the gospel again that that's not who you are. You're a new creation in Christ. There's more to you than who your children become. Some of you want to go make a zillion dollars in the business world. Go for it. And when you idolize your money, and when you live for the success that is going to be yours, then you have to go to the car wash and repent. And get out your checkbook or go online and give all your money to RUF. And then get up the next day and go back to work and seek to live a life that glorifies God by not living for yourself and for your money. Or if you want to be an engineer, how do you do that? If you want to be an engineer, you take your skills into your company and you try to make it the best place it can be. And you take all of your little minute things that you've spent your life perfecting and you go make the company more efficient so that it can make more money, so that they can hire more people. You go try to do things and construct the pipeline in such a way that it doesn't harm the environment in God's world as much as it did. 
And in those days, those days when you're working 90 hours a week and you haven't seen your wife and kids and they're becoming less important to you, you have to go to the car wash and repent and say, God, I am more than the sum total of what I produce. And you get up the next day and you go to work and you strive to live for God and His glory and for the good of others. That's the Christian life, y'all. You live into the person that you've become. So are you in Christ? Have you been united to Him in a death like His and in a resurrection like His? Paul is holding out the good news for you tonight. And every night, this is Jesus offering Himself to you. Would you take Him? Let's pray together.